0: Executive Perspective Behind the Business. In this podcast, we bring you insights and perspectives from government leaders and executives around the Beltway and beyond.
1: Hello and welcome back to Executive Perspective Behind the Business. I'm your host, Ryan Alcorn. Today I'm joined by Mr. Edward Swallow. He's the Senior Vice President of the Civil Systems Group of the Aerospace Corporation. CSG operates in the national security interests of the United States and its allies to broaden the company's business and technology base. Prior to joining Aerospace, Swallow was the Vice President of Business Development for the Federal and Defense Technologies Division north of Grumman Information Systems. He's also the founding chairman of Washington Exec's STEM Council and has been a proud advocate for kids in STEM. Ed, thanks
0: for joining us. Great. Thank you for having me.
1: Let's dive right into it. You've had a long career in government contracting. How did you first become involved in STEM?
0: Well, actually, uh, when I went to college, my first career was going to be a high school physics teacher. I had a great mentor uh, in fifth grade who got me interested in science. Uh, My football coach was also the physics teacher at my high school, and he got me really excited about physics. So I wanted to be a high school physics teacher. Unfortunately, this is 1978, I couldn't find a job teaching at the time except for a little school uh, in upstate New York jokingly uh, referred to as the uh, only school district north of the Arctic Circle in the continental United States. And I decided that wasn't really where I wanted to go, so I started looking at, uh, uh, at different career options, and the Air Force offered me a scholarship, uh, and that's how I got into the military and eventually into government contracting. But I've always been interested in teaching uh, and understanding science. That's kind of been a, a hobby of mine, but also something I believe strongly that we uh, uh, we need more of here in the U.S. And now,
1: as, as we can both probably agree on, the U.S. has been known to, to be falling behind in the maths and sciences
0: recently. In your opinion, how can we catch up? So if, if you look at uh, where we've been for quite a while, uh, the, the push behind No Child Left Behind and some of the, the, the standards and the testing, they left science off the list. And so uh, for many, many years we've had the challenge that if science not going to be tested, it's not going to be taught. And so the other subjects grew to take up the time available. The problem is math without the context is just numbers. Uh, and so linking math and science and learning math, learning English, learning history in, in a greater context helps people re- retain it. You know, there's an old saying, if you hear something, you, you remember about 15% of it. Uh, if, you, uh, if you hear and if you read something, you'll retain about 20% of it. If you hear and read something, you get up closer to 40 or 45%. But if you hear, read, and then do something with it, you'll retain about 85%. So integrated project-based learning is the key. So if you learn all of it in the same context, and science, especially things like space, uh, like uh, 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 some of the, uh, the new engineering kind of things, gaming, all of those things, learning all of the pieces of it together as an integrated whole helps to get, uh, people excited about learning it and you tend to retain a lot more. So instead of just learning your multiplication tables, you actually get to apply it to something and then you're not memorizing something, you're doing something fun. Uh, and that becomes, uh, to me, the way to catch up is to get that project-based learning, uh, inquiry-based learning early on in uh, in uh, in schools.
1: So in- engaging with these students and, and showing them what goes beyond just the maths and the sciences, they can integrate and have real world uh, consequences that are much more exciting. You grew up in a military household. How did this
0: impact your interest in government contracting and STEM? So, a big part of it uh, was uh, my dad was Seabees, uh, uh, and uh, his specialty was pouring concrete. Uh, and he did it all over the Pacific, uh, he did it in a lot of other places. Uh, but I, I started out saying, oh, I want to be an architect. And then it was, I want to be an engineer. And then it was kind of, no, I want to teach physics. But, you know, uh, my dad was always talking about the, the big construction projects he was working on, the challenges that he faced. Uh, one of the projects he helped build the containment vessel for the nuclear reactors up in Schenectady, New York, that were used for the Naval Reactor Program, and talking about how do you pour concrete into a sphere, you know, uh, when, you think, when you think about the challenges behind that. And so that was kind of an interesting uh, way to grow up. Uh, but uh, unlike a lot of people, uh, you know, I got excited and interested in the sciences early in life. I think one of the big challenges we run into right now is there, there aren't that many ways for kids to get excited uh, and, uh, about science. And as a result, they aren't getting excited about math. Uh, and so our biggest challenge right now in the U.S. is we're not getting, uh, we're not getting people on the right track in, uh, in math. So it's very easy to understand if you look at the order in which we take classes here in the United States. If you're not taking algebra by eighth grade, you're not going to get a four-year degree in science, math, or engineering. Just It can't happen. Uh, so therefore the decisions as to when you're going to be taking algebra actually get made in fifth grade and sometimes earlier. So a study done by Tony, Tony at, uh, the Georgetown center for the study of education, uh, shows that back in, uh, fifth grade is when those decisions get made. And that's when we're losing the vast majority of people from the STEM track, but more importantly, we're losing girls in fourth grade and we're losing, uh, children of color in third and so we've got to start getting all of that into third, fourth, fifth grade. And and you know when I was in when I was in fifth grade, uh, I had a phenomenal uh, teacher. Uh, we were splitting up, so one of the teachers did math, one of the teachers did science, one of the teachers did English. So you rotated around, uh, and Mr. Russo was his name, and he got me really excited about that. And so it's one of those cases we've got to get, we got to find those teachers, and we got to arm them with inquiry-based learning in that third, fourth, fifth grade and get math to be interesting to people. And that's what's really going to make a difference. Absolutely.
1: Now, moving forward to, to another great interest of mine, uh, I think this is something that we share, space and space-based technologies. How do you use space-based technologies, kind of a tongue twister there, to solve
0: real-world problems? So, actually, uh, real-world problem, finding this place this morning. Uh, You know, I'm I'm proud to work for the company that co-founded the GPS system. Is that right? Uh, 1963 is when we came up with the architectural concepts, and actually we have on our website the now declassified but then secret uh, trade study that was done to figure out how to make GPS work, and without GPS, I would not have found this building this morning because right? JD's directions were not very good. <laughs> so, uh, it, so it's one of those cases. Uh, we use space-based technology all the time. Uh, nowadays, you cannot be an efficient farmer in the Midwest of the company in the country. Not just because of GPS, but because of the remote sensing capabilities, because of the the weather reporting capabilities, because of the, the ability of us to forecast uh, weather challenges when they're coming, uh, to help do crop yield forecasting you know, after they're already planted, to help uh, farmers understand what parts of the market are going to be uh, more profitable for them to plant. All of those things uh, play, uh, play into it. At the same time, the benefits that come out from, uh, from the space program are just amazing. I just finished a book. Uh, 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 Alan uh, Alan Fishman's uh, 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 One Great Leap. Uh, And in that, he talks about some of the things, you know, everybody knows about Tang and Velcro. Uh, Actually, Tang was invented before the Apollo program, but it got famous because of the Apollo program. Uh, But Velcro was invented uh, for the Apollo program. But what a lot of people don't realize is real-time data processing. And all of the computers that we depend on today that do near real-time processing can trace their roots to an MIT laboratory in the early 60s where they said, we've got to take, you know, it, back in the days, everybody bragged about how big their computer was. How many floors in the building did their computer have to have? That's when you had the biggest computer. And the Apollo program said, nope, i got to shrink it down to one cubic foot. Right. Uh, and so, and, and by the way, it better not fail. So nobody had ever thought of a computer having somebody's life in its hand before the Apollo program. And so when you think about the technologies that came out of that, every single real-time processor, and there's dozens of them in each one of our computers, uh, in in each one of our uh, uh, computational devices, all the way down to the cell phones that we carry nowadays, all trace their roots back to the concept of real-time processing that was developed for Apollo. So I think space-based technologies writ large are all around us. We just don't know to see them. But what's really exciting right now is with all the commercial activities going on in space, it's created a new excitement about space. And so that's a great way to get kids uh, excited and attracted. Uh, Apollo 50 just happened uh, a, a little while ago. And They launched 5,000 model rockets down at Marshall Space Flight Center in commemoration of the launch uh, of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. And all students from all over the country helped build each one of those rockets. And every one of those kids had to learn something about basic rocketry and had to figure out which engine to use based on the weight of the device that they're in. That's all science. That's all math. It got them all excited. They were third, fourth, and fifth graders. There's going to be a a renewed renaissance as a result. of this Apollo 50, and if we can get to the moon in five years, I think it's going to really make a difference.
1: Absolutely. Now, building off of this, this technology idea, what
0: new technology today are you most excited about? So, uh, there, you know, there's uh, there's all these standard ones that everybody throws out there, and, you know, so I'm going to use the buzzword of the day, artificial intelligence, but I'm going to use it in a slightly different term. So right now, a lot of people look at artificial intelligence to, uh, to obtain an objective, you know. And so you have a lot of companies out there that are looking at AI for mission objectives. You have another set of people like, uh, like my company who are looking at using AI to get our job done better. And a lot of what we do is mission assurance or, or uh, mission success. And so there are people looking at how do, you, how do you leverage artificial intelligence to do the job you're doing better to have the work that a human does be the things that you really need human intelligence for, that you need intuition uh, for, and let AI take care of more of the mundane activities. What I'm really excited about is uh, is, uh, some research that we're doing specifically around how do you trust an AI system. If you're gonna put an AI system into place to replace humans and you're gonna put human lives on the line, to trust that AI, how do you make sure it's going to make the right decisions? You can't take every possible scenario and throw it at the, throw it at the AI software, especially learning software, because that AI system will then learn bad behaviors. Mm. So that's not the way to do it. So right. there's a real challenge around how do, you, how do you learn to trust an AI system? Uh, and so we're doing some research in that area uh, and working with a couple of uh, interesting folks. AI is going to is going to be the critical element of getting to Mars. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you think about going to the Moon, if something goes bad, you know you're talking about twenty to twenty five seconds light time delay. You know to have somebody on the ground talking to somebody on the uh, uh, to talking to somebody on the uh, uh, on their way there or on the way back. You can make that work, you know, if you have to have a doctor saying, what's going on and how can I help you? If you have to say, what's going on with your system? Apollo 13 is a great example of people troubleshooting. When you're up on Mars, people don't realize how far Mars is. The light time delay is 20 minutes. Right. And with a 20 minute round trip, you're not going to do real time troubleshooting you're going to need artificial intelligence to make that happen, and those astronauts are going to have to trust it. Mm-hmm. And it's that building that, building trusted AI systems that I think is, is an area of investigation that I think more people ought to be spending more time on. Hmm. The stories of Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov are coming
1: true. <laughs> well, and,
0: and not only that, but, you know, when you talk about the three the three fundamental rules of robotics, mm-hmm. how do you enforce that right. when you have a learning system? So this is no longer science fiction. We have gone way beyond science fiction, and we're now in the scientific reality of, okay, we got to figure this out. Right. Uh, there's an old joke, the physics of the problem are well understood, the politics not so much. Uh, we, we have to go another step to that because we're no longer talking about the laws of physics. Uh, artificial intelligence is, is gaining great bounds. I'm not, a, a, I'm not an Elon Musk, uh, artificial intelligence will eventually be evil and take over the world kind of person. Uh, but I am somebody that says we have to figure out how to trust and how to build trust into those systems. And I don't think enough work is being done in that area right now. And, and
1: building on this idea of trust, and you brought up Elon Musk, how do you feel about things like self-driving cars? Will, will humans, should they embrace these these concepts of, of machines taking over human jobs in this sense?
0: So for, for those areas where you don't need human intuition, where you don't need uh, the, the, the combination of cognition, intuition, and reaction mm-hmm. that a human can give you, if you have time for the machine to learn everything that's in there. Uh, then uh, we ought to be able to depend on those things. If you you look at aircraft right now, uh, you know, the MCAS problem uh, Mm -hmm. that the 737 MAX had uh, was a matter of people depending on AI, you know, uh, a little bit too much, automated control systems. Uh, But uh, And so basic pilot skills, you know, uh, aviation skills kind of took a second place to the automated controls on the aircraft. But we've been headed in that way for a long time. I think with with cars, you know, it's one of those cases, we're still at the early stages, I don't know where it's going to go, my crystal ball is kind of muddy. But if you think about it, when one of the one of the uh, self driving car companies took uh, their car down to Australia for the first time, uh, it was dry, it was driving, and the, the visual system saw a kangaroo. Well, it classified it as a dog because that's all it had in its database was dogs. Sure. And so a dog could start and stop and accelerate at a certain rate, and it said, that kangaroo can't get in my way. Wrong. Mm. Kangaroos move a whole lot faster than dogs do. Right. Uh, so they had to go back and reprogram it. Well, how do you figure out every animal that could possibly get in the way of a car, and which ones is it okay? You know, if a squirrel runs in front of you, Are you going to kill everybody in the car to avoid killing the squirrel? Probably not. If an elephant runs in front of the car, you better take different story, different story. So uh, when you think about those kind of things, you know, there's a whole host of situations where somebody's going to have to have the cognition and intuition to be able to take and make a reaction uh, at some point when you're driving a car until all the cars are doing the same thing. Uh, and so it's the transition period is going to be the hardest as we transition to those kind of things. Uh, because then you're going to have people that, you know, if everybody follows the same rules of the road, which is what we have in the skies right now, everybody follows at a certain distance, eastbound, you're at a certain, you know, at even uh, levels, westbound, you're at odd levels. Uh, and you know, everybody follows the rules of the road. You don't have to have a problem when you get on the surface roads, it's a very chaotic environment. And I don't think we've gotten to the point where we're able to solve the, the chaotic challenge that there is of just too much information. But if everybody followed the same rules, so if you had dedicated roadways where everybody was following the same rules at the same time, then it becomes a whole lot less chaotic and you can pack a lot more throughput right. onto those same roadways. So I think the transition period will be hard, but it's possible. Not going to rule it out, not going to rule it in.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. And, and it's interesting that we, we've been talking about STEM and learning STEM uh, to, to get jobs and steady careers. But what do you think from an economic standpoint that the transition to AI and machine learning will have? And how can people that are in industries like trucking, how should they adapt? This is, I mean, this is a million-dollar question, right? Candidates like Andrew Yang are, are running on issues like these.
0: Yeah, and and, and so uh, everybody's making very good points. Uh, we're we're at the stage right now where we're admiring the problem, not necessarily addressing it. Right. I think uh, where uh, where jobs are always going to be uh, is either where perspiration or inspiration are the are required. Well said. Uh, you know the service industry. Uh, there are still going to be services. Somebody has to maintain the robots. You know, uh, somebody's going to have to program them. Uh, so some foundational understanding of math and science is a critical part of the conversation. Uh, when, we, uh, when, you, uh, when you look at what we're teaching our, uh, our kids nowadays, somebody has to build the robots, program them, uh, and and somebody has to monitor them. You know, the, the old joke about 10 years ago used to be in a data center, you know, the the only people in a data center was a man and the dog. Hmm. The man's job was to make sure nobody touched the computers. The dog's job was to make sure the man didn't touch the computer. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, the factory of the future will slowly reduce the number of people that are in there. Right. Uh, but at the same time, it's not going to eliminate all of them uh and so and people have to design that and, and people have to create the the, the, uh, the goods and services that are going that are going to be produced in that factory. And so as we start looking to the jobs of the future, a basic understanding of engineering and physics principles, problem solving, the application of inspiration and intuition to, uh, to the problem, is where the jobs are going to be. That doesn't mean everybody has to have a four-year degree in STEM. Uh, far from it. Uh, when you really think about inspiration, when you think of those kind of things, the arts are a clear case where, uh, you know, we're never going to get uh, award-winning plays, or at least not in my lifetime, are we going to get an award-winning Broadway play written by a computer. Right. You know, uh, and, and, and humans need those kind of things to inspire them uh, and to... And, and to touch their heart and to uh, and to engage them in understanding the world around them, so there 's going to be room for a lot of those things, but at the same time, a lot of those things require a better understanding of the of the world around us for us all to be better citizens mm-hmm. and so I think you 're going to see uh, a little more emphasis and in all cases, the ability to problem solve you know uh, and and understanding problem solving you know there 's an old joke about engineers uh Uh, And I'm an electrical engineer, so, uh, you know, forgive me for this one. But most engineers at the undergraduate level learn how to solve a problem. You know, a civil engineer learns that if I need to span a certain distance and carry a certain weight at the center point and I'm going to use steel, that steel steel beam, there's one answer to that. In electrical engineering, especially when you're designing circuits, there are multiple ways of designing a circuit to it, to achieve the same objective. So you have to ask more questions. Mm-hmm. So most engineering are about solving a problem. Electrical engineers learn early on problem solving. And I think that problem solving needs to be moved down into the earlier grades. And that's where inquiry-based learning, present people with a problem and do something about it currently on the board of the Smithsonian Science Education Center, and one of the things we're working on uh, is uh, is curriculum uh, uh, built around uh, inquiry-based learning. Uh, And it's really a multidisciplinary. It's not a science curriculum. It's a multidisciplinary that uses solving real-world problems around you. Uh, The Global Goals for Sustainment uh, by the UN are another one where we're developing some curriculum at SSEC specifically around uh, solving society's problems. So the first module that's out is on the mosquito. And it asks you questions about your community and how does the mosquito affect your community. And it asks you fundamental questions about the social fabric of where you are, not just about the, okay, mosquitoes carry malaria, therefore mosquitoes are bad, therefore let's kill all the mosquitoes. Hmm. may not be the right answer because if you eat a lot of fish, guess what the fish eat? mosquito larvae. You kill all the mosquitoes, you've killed all the fish food. You kill all the fish food, everybody dies from starvation. So you have to look at something in a larger systemic environment. And so I think that's part of the conversation, uh, as well as understanding the implications not just of solving an individual problem, but the context in which it sits, and at a larger macro level, how all of that fits together. Uh, a lot of the curriculum, uh, so the, uh, the mosquito module for example, the first one that came out, uh, is, really, uh, is really focused. There's uh, activities that can be done at the community level all the way down to the first and second grade, all the way up to, uh, to graduate level, mm-hmm. and projects that, uh, that communities can undertake to make the world around them a better place to live. Uh, and so I think that's a big way of inspiring people to get involved is making a difference. And if kids and parents want to get more involved in this specific project, where can they look? So actually, they can download the curriculum. the The uh, mosquito module is free. Uh, they can download the guidebook. Uh, right off, uh, Smithsonian is pretty well known around here, uh, but it's uh, ssec. Uh, dot, uh, uh, dot org uh, and, uh, you can download the information. It's, it's a great community activity. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, uh, activity guidebooks, uh, instructions, uh, for volunteers, instructions for leaders. Uh, it, it's a complete package. Now,
1: finally, we've talked a lot about kids in the next generation at a time of, of a lot of change.
0: What advice can you give for parents with young students? So, one of the challenges I see is, uh, I see uh, when students start struggling with a subject, one of two things happens. They decide that they're going to overcome the struggle, uh, or they succumb and they decide that's too hard, I'm going to stop doing it. The worst thing a parent can ever say to a child is, that's okay, I was bad at math too. Uh, To me, uh, that is setting expectations for that person, because as I said earlier, Math is the language of science, and science is the language of understanding the world we live in. And so if you're saying it's okay not to be good at math, it's not okay to understand the world we live in is the extension of that. The best thing a parent can say is that's okay, I wasn't good at math too, but let's learn it together. Mm -hmm. And so if I can leave anybody with any thought, it's don't let kids struggle help them with it but don't let them succumb to the struggle it's important that we inspire uh our uh, our kids to be uh to be engaged in the world that we're in to understand it better uh, and that we get everyone involved in the next the next economy in an effective way
1: well mr ed swallow of aerospace corporation thank you very much for your time it's been a wonderful
0: episode thank you very much i really enjoyed being here Thanks for joining us on Executive Perspective, Behind the Business. Visit our website at www.washingtonexec.com for more content and episodes.